in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, this one scene that you see on the screen there is, is the one that seems to just stand out in my mind more than any other. And it certainly has over the last couple of weeks as we've been in Revelation chapter 19. Theoden and his army of Rohan is under siege there at Helm's Deep. And, and Gandalf, you remember, has promised that he would return. Uh, and he told them to look to the east. And so there under the darkness of certain defeat, the sun begins to rise and the light breaks through the window. And they, they go out and there's Gandalf leading the reinforcements, standing on, or seated on Shadowfax was the name of that horse. And, and light just pierced the darkness there, if you will. And anyway, the, you know, the, the orcs are just blinded by the light that comes off. It's just, man, it's a good scene in that movie, okay? Go, go watch it again. And so as I've been thinking about that in regard to the passage that we have in front of us in Revelation chapter 19, um, just the, the contrast that we have in this section of Revelation is real important for us to keep in mind as we come to Revelation 19, because even there, there's this picture of contrast that's really hard to take in. And starting in chapter 17, we have this this if you will, these contrasts, these two pictures between two women, two cities, and two outcomes, if you will, two eternal outcomes. There's this contrast, this picture that's given for us between Babylon, this harlot, and the beautiful bride of Christ. And we have contrasted there Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that we'll, we're about to see uh, coming down from heaven and, and this picture of Babylon being crushed that we've seen over the last couple of chapters. One will pass away violently under the judgment of God as we see today. And the other one is blessed as we've sung about already this morning. Um, and so just remember this represents these two contrasts. There's two allegiances here. Okay. Two affections of our hearts. Two pursuits. All right. And they're, they're there for a reason. They're there for us as God's people to examine our own lives. And back in Revelation chapter 18, there was this, there was this contrast established for us. All right? Remember, we have seen the beast arising up out of the sea. And now we'll see the king coming from heaven. We have seen the beast empowered by the dragon. And we see this king, King Jesus, empowered with the very authority of God. We see this image, if you will, this image of Satan kind of stamped on to the beast. And Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of God. He's, he's the, the, the picture, if you will. He is God incarnate. The beast has ten crowns. That's impressive. Jesus has many crowns. All right. We'll see that in the passage today. The dragon gives his beast power. Christ has the power of God. The beast imitates Christ, even in what we saw, this womb that appeared to be fatal and he appears to come back. And here we have the lamb who was slain returning as a lion. He's alive. So we have this contrast all along. And finally, there's this contrast in this section of the text. The beast has been raging and making war against the offspring of the woman, against the church. But today, Jesus makes war. Don't get comfortable. 
it's really short, okay? The war is really short, all right? It, it won't last long at all. So the passage, we're just let's just look at the verse together. Because the passage that we just saw last week ended with the angel telling John, don't do that when he comes to worship at the feet of the angel. He's just overcome by what he sees and hears, and he falls at the feet of the angel. So Revelation 19.10, the angel says, no, I'm the wrong one to worship. In chapter, in verse 11, we see the right one. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to see here. Back in Revelation chapter 13, the worshipers of the beast kind of defiantly ask this question. Who can fight against it? Talking about the beast. Well, they're about to get crushed by the answer to that question. All right. Then in John chapter one, and we'll spend some time on this at the end. John tells us that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Later on, he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Well, we're going to see the fullness of God's truth and justice in Revelation 19. In John 1, we saw the fullness of God's grace. In Revelation 19, we see the fullness of God's justice, both of which are carried out by the same agent, brought about by Christ. So what we see in Revelation 19 is the king returning in all glory. He is faithful and true. What we see here is what Paul tells us, that The readers and the listeners, remember, Revelation, I believe, was just read to the church. Just in one sitting, a letter from John to those seven churches that are suffering under the hand of Rome, under the hand of a a worldly culture, under the hand of of a culture and a community that wanted to conform them into its own likeness. They're suffering. And so they hear this book, this letter read to them. And Revelation chapter 19 especially, I believe, gives them great hope and great promise. Because it seems evil is just running rampant. It's out of control. But it's not running rampant. And it is not out of control. And it will not win. That's, that's what we see here. That's what they heard. That's what we need to hear. We glory In the mercy and grace of Christ. God wants us to glory in his wrath and in his judgment as well. It may be hard for us to understand this side of heaven. But we will. We will. And and we get a foretaste of that in our passage today. So let's, let's look at the text. And again, there's a contrast, all right? In Revelation chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, we're going to have the Supper of God. Cursed are those who come to that one. All right? Just keep that in mind. Let's look at the text. All right? Starting in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains. The flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder that you are the lamb who was slain and the lion who roars. Help us just take in this this majestic, this awful picture of 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 who you are. It's a mysterious thing. Lord, your prophet Isaiah tells us that your judgment is your strange work. Help us see with eyes of faith. How terrible that judgment is. How great your grace is. How urgent it is, Lord, that we that we warn and 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 implore people to be rescued in Christ. So, Lord, uh, by your spirit, um, lead us into this word and let it bear fruit in our lives. Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to see the king return today. There's three three points that. I think we can gain from this text. He returns with his power and glory and authority. He returns with devastating and undiscriminating judgment. And he returns and captures his enemies and destroys them. It's, it's simple. That's, that's what we see here. And in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, we see the glory and a power and authority that comes. Heaven was opened. Now remember, back in chapter 4 and 5, John saw heaven opened there. And there he saw the throne room of God with God seated on the throne. In chapter 5, he saw the lamb who had been slain standing as a lion. And so here the heavens are opened again. And now he sees this one who is king, sees him returning. So heavens are open. The heavens are open not only to see who is coming, but to see how he's coming. And he's coming on this white horse, okay? This picture of majesty, this picture of victory. He's coming in clear contrast to what we saw earlier of this, of this woman, if you will, Babylon, who was seated on this scarlet beast. Okay, I was kind of messing around this week, just looking at famous white horses. The first one that came up was was Gandalf's. Okay, I guess that's just more recent. Roy Rogers rode a white horse. Some of you need to go look up and see who that was. All right. But 
Well, but that's what it said. I'm, well, I know, but... And listen, some people say the horses here are symbolic. That they're not real. But I don't believe that, okay? I'm on your side on this one, Sharon and Linda, okay? Just want you to know. I don't think this is, this is, this is not symbolic, okay? So, all right. Palomino, white, whatever. I know there's a difference, okay? Here's, here's the contrast, though. The last time Jesus was riding something, it was the foal of a donkey, right? Humble. Most people didn't recognize him at all. That won't happen this next time, okay? That won't happen. Heaven is open and we see how he's coming. And heaven is open and we see what he's like. says he is faithful and true. Unlike all of Israel's previous leaders, unlike every leader that's ever put on a pair of pants and a dress, or a dress, unfaithful, untrue, in some way, in some capacity, all right? That's what humans are. This one is not that. He is faithful and true. Faithful meaning he's dependable. He's reliable. He is trustworthy. He is true. You can count on every syllable, every word he says being fulfilled and being accomplished. John had heard Jesus say earlier, I am the way and the truth and the life. Well, now he sees it. He's seen it lived out in Jesus' life. He's seen it lived out in the lives of the churches that he's pastored and served. Now he sees it in this heavenly vision. He is the real thing. He's authentic. He's all genuine. He is genuine. So he can be trusted. He can be trusted. He is faithful and true. Because he is faithful and true, he is righteous and good in all that he does. And that includes in the way that he judges and makes war. That seems to be contradictory, right? But that's what it says there. In Genesis 18, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Jesus himself said he would judge with justice, that his judgment was just in John chapter 5. Well, here that's declared too. He is the faithful and true one, and because he is faithful and true, he is judging rightly, and he is making war in righteousness. Here's what that means. He is not influenced by human emotion. He is not influenced by politics. He is not influenced by some political position or hunger for power. In fact, one commentator points out, and it's true, these verbs are in the present tense. He has been and always will be like this. Just and true. And all he does is done in justice and in right. No one can question his decisions. No one can question his motives. No one can question if he's doing the right thing the right way. He always is. And that's true in the way his judgment is poured out as well. He has eyes like flames of fire. We saw this in chapter 1. As he walked among the churches, his eyes were like flames of fire. We saw it again in chapter 2. The Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire. Church, this ought to encourage us that our shepherd sees us all the time. He cares for us. He loves us. He's providing for us. We are never outside of his sight. And it ought to keep you awake at night if you are not in Christ. It ought to keep us awake. It ought to keep every human being awake at night. That his eyes see every thought. His eyes see every intention. His eyes see every motive. His eyes see it all. He has many diadems, it says. 
Crown him with many crowns. It's, it's, a, it's a praise to the return of Christ and to his authority. We've sung that this morning. Crown him with many crowns. This is the lion who is ruling and reigning. It's a picture of his authority. It's a picture of his rule, his reign over, listen, every kingdom, every despot, every ruler. The Taliban is not excluded. The government of China is not excluded. The government in Washington, D.C. is not excluded. He rules and reigns over them all. But the other thing that this tells us, too, and not only does it tell us that he possesses infinite authority and dominion, but it reminds us of the lies of the enemy. Because earlier the dragon who had seven diadems was just pretending to rule the world, like many authorities and rulers today. Playing the game, pretending, but there's no pretense here. These pretenders, we're going to see them for who they are. And Jesus' authority and rule is without limit. Notice what it says next. This is, this is strange. We, we've seen, we will see his name given for us three different times in this passage of Scripture. Already we see him called faithful and true. But now it tells us in verse 12 that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What in the world? Think about this for just a second. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. The glory is of the only, is of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. But church, we cannot get too casual, and we will never, never delve to the depths of who Jesus is. We'll have all eternity to discover him. And I believe that's what this is talking about here. In the Old Testament, to know someone's name was in some sense, the Hebrews understood, to, to have control over someone. Jesus says, there's part of me that you don't know and many will never. I believe we who are his will discover it. But it'll take a long time. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've only just begun to understand who he is, how gracious and glorious he is. And we'll be learning about him forever. And so, yes, he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the word of God. He is faithful and true. But... There are part, there's, he is transcendent. And there's an aspect to the very character of our Lord that we don't know and cannot know this side. But we will, I believe, given eternity. He has a robe that is dipped in blood, it says next. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God, it tells us in verse 13. What is this? Some say it's the blood of the martyrs, that he is he's covered, if you will. The robe he wears bears the marks of those martyrs who have who have shed their blood on behalf of the gospel, who have not loved their lives more than their faithfulness to Christ. And that there's certainly there's there's certainly an aspect to that, I think, that would be the case. But I think all week I've been thinking about John chapter three. 
I've been thinking about verse 16 where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave him as an atoning sacrifice. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the verse 17 there, Jesus tells us that the father did not send Jesus that first time to come to judge, to condemn the world. But he sent him in order that through him the world might be saved. The first time he came, he came shedding his blood as the atoning sacrifice. Grace. Grace. It's what we see in Jesus that first time around. But John 3.18 tells us that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Understand this today, that if you've never trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't have to wait till you die and stand before the judgment seat of God to be condemned in your sin. You are already. And so this robe dipped in blood, I don't think this is his atoning blood. I think this is the blood that Isaiah, I remember as we preached through the book of Isaiah, we got to Isaiah chapter 63. And it's amazing, we've seen all of these pictures through Isaiah of the suffering servant. We've seen these pictures in Isaiah of this one who has come to serve. And the one who has come to just pour himself out on behalf of his people. We've seen this one by whose stripes we are healed. But in Isaiah chapter 63, starting in verse 1, we read this. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his armaments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? Well, here we hear the one being prophesied about speaking for himself. We saw that in Psalm 2, as Jason read it earlier. There's this heavenly dialogue going on. And the son responds in Psalm 2, and I believe he does here as well. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of the one treading the winepress? The answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger. I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that there were no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, in my wrath. I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Isaiah is prophesying about the second coming of Christ. And that's what we see in this robe dipped in blood. Then the text says... That his name is the word of God. We live in a culture just like we all cultures before us who just love to embrace the fact that God is love. And he is. And we should embrace that. And the word became flesh first time so we could understand and see that fully in Christ. But here the word comes this second time. And he again is communicating God's word in perfect communication. He's doing it perfectly. And when we see Jesus, we're looking at God. And when we listen to Jesus, we're hearing from God. And as the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the word of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that by his word, by his powerful word, he is holding this universe together. Well, by his powerful word, he will crush his enemies. That's how fast the battle will be. 
just with a word. He is the word of God. We'll see more on that in just a minute. I'm going to develop that in our application. So the heavens are opened and we see him in all his glory and all of his power. The heavens are open and we see his army with him. Notice what it says. And the armies of heaven. Oops, sorry. Let me finish it and get it out of here. That's what I get for taking the lid off of it. The heavens of arm, the heavens, uh, the army of heaven is coming with him, it says there. And look at how we're dressed. I say we. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Following him on white horses. That's the picture that we have here of, of the army of Jesus. We're wearing the robes of righteousness. We already saw that a little bit there in the in what we wear as the, the bride of Christ. But we wear the garments of a priest as well. I believe that's what this represents here. It's an image of, of perfect holiness. It's a picture, I believe, of the armies of heaven, including all of the angels and all of the redeemed. It's a big army. But commentators point out, and I think it's interesting to note, that we don't see anything about their weapons. And, and it just doesn't say... What they're carrying is weaponry. But it doesn't say anything about them fighting either. And I think if we follow the model, remember in the Old Testament, the the priests, you know, were a part of those armies, but they were separate in a sense. They weren't fighting. One commentator said the casualty list at the end on our side will be zero. And we will be there as witnesses, not to fight. I'll give us an application on that in just a minute, but I think there's some validity to that understanding that this holy army that comes with Jesus is redeemed by Jesus. But we're following him. He is leading with his sword. And we are there to see the outcome of our salvation. Heaven is opened and we see him with his power and his authority. Look, we see the power of his word. We see the power of his scepter. We see the power of his judgment. Notice what it says there. And all three of these phrases are, are that when the people heard it, when John first sent this letter and those folks in the early church heard it there, their minds would go immediately to these pictures that we have in the Old Testament. From his mouth comes a short, sharp sword with which to judge the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, it says. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The power of his word, the sword coming from his mouth. It's a picture of that, the efficacy, if you will, the power that comes. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is what? A double-edged sword. All right, in chapter 4. It's sharp. It's double-edged. It cuts right through to the very marrow of our conscience. It shows us as believers. It does surgery on the followers of Christ. And it will chop to pieces the enemy. It is a powerful sword. It cuts to the heart of a believer. But it will cut again here at the last judgment. Bringing about condemnation and the judgment that God has ordained. The power of his word. The power of his scepter. Jason read from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain against him? The Lord laughs, the psalmist tells us. He laughs in derision at them. And says of his son, I have installed my king and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's a picture of authority. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of unquestioned 
unquestioned dominance. A rod of iron and the power of his wrath. He says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Back in Joel, Old Testament prophet Joel, you don't have to turn there if you want to just jot this down. Joel chapter 3. He says, let the nations be roused. I'm reading Joel 3:12. Let the nations be roused, roused and advanced to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit down to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full. The wine vats overflow because their wickedness is great. That's what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 3. Back in Revelation chapter 14. The, the angel, the third angel, said with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Later on in that very same chapter, then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who said on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And he sat on the clouds, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty. In the garden before he died, Jesus prayed, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The wrath of God is an awful thing. And Jesus saw it. It caused him to sweat drops of blood and pray that he would not have to taste it. But he said, not my will, but yours. And submitted himself. And took upon himself that wrath for those who would put their faith in him and trust in him. And the scriptures are clear. That cup will be poured out again. It will be poured out again. And Jesus will not be the one this second time around taking the cup himself. He will be the one treading out the winepress of God's wrath. And instead of his own blood, it will be the blood of his enemies. This goes against every aspect of our modern nature, our politically correct understanding of what might be acceptable according to some cultural standard. But we need to see this picture that's here before us. In the beginning, Jesus was the agent of creation. I read that already. All things came to be through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. And in the end here, he is the agent of judgment. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only Father, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God in the salvation of those who trust in Him will be matched by the glory of God in the judgment of those who have rebelled against Him. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are just and true. That's the song that we will sing as we witness this. And we will. We will witness it. 
His unquestioned authority is there in the name that he bears. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The thigh was highly symbolic in biblical culture. It was, the, it was that place of power. It was that place of authority. The thigh was where the, the sword was girded. And here on his thigh, he has this name. Remember, the beast comes covered with names that are blasphemous. Jesus is covered with the names of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 45, 3 says, Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and in your majesty. And so once again, King of kings and Lord of lords, we have this, this name of the full deity of Christ. God's the only one who bears this name. And here Jesus bears it. John Newton, amazing grace fame. John Newton wrote a beautiful, short, little sermon on this one phrase, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And here's what John Newton wrote about this title. This inscription, his own people read by the eye of faith in this present life. And it inspires them with confidence and joy. Under many tribulations, they pass through in the course of their profession as they see this name with eyes of faith. Hereafter it shall be openly known and read by all men. Every knee shall see it, every eye shall see it, every heart must either bow or break before him. King of kings and Lord of lords. Heaven is open so we can see him with all of his power, his glory, and authority. Heaven is also open so we can see him in all of his judgment. Terrible and undiscriminating. Notice what it says. I saw the angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called the birds to fly directly, that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. With the bright sun as the backdrop, this angel stands there in the heavens and invites the birds to dinner. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat this. There's no way to make it sound any better or worse. Earlier, the two witnesses in chapter 11 were killed for their faithful witness to Christ, and they were left unburied. Remember, for three and a half days, they lay there unburied. In the Jewish mind, there was nothing more dishonoring or repulsive than to not bury a dead body. And here, the enemies of God... Lay out in the open. For those who receive him, John 1 tells us, he gave the right to become children of God. For those who reject him, he makes them carrion for the birds. It's that simple. The contrast is that stark. Scott Duvall says in his little commentary on Revelation, everyone will participate, listen to this, in one of two eschatological feasts. The righteous joining in the wedding supper of the Lamb or the wicked or the wicked becoming feast, the feast at the great supper of God. You hear that? We're all going to be going to a dinner in the end. At one, we will be blessed. At the other, the main course. Duvall goes on. God will judge the wicked from every social category. Social status or rank will not be enough to exempt the ungodly from judgment. Kings, captains, mighty men, small and great, slave and free, it matters not. 
Our God is indiscriminate. I remember last week I said, and it's true, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, the ground is level at the judgment seat of God. And it does not matter. He will be indiscriminate in his judgment. And it will be a day of universal reckoning. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some worshiping him for And some that will be the last words off their lips. The king returns. Devastating and undiscriminating judgment. And then finally there in verse 19... He returns to capture and slay those who oppose him. And it's almost like an afterthought. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. He saw them in verse 19. In verse 20, they're captured. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who was in its presence, who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The battle is short. It's just one breath, one word. And it's over. It's what Paul said in Second Thessalonians. Jesus will kill them with the breath of his mouth and bring bring them to nothing at the appearance of his coming. So don't get comfortable in your seat, church, to watch this battle. It won't last long. It's that quick. The false prophet, the beast are thrown into the lake of fire and their army is crushed. One writer said the long-awaited battle of Armageddon will be a disappointment to those expecting a good fight. Chuck Swindoll said, let's cut to the chase. Before anybody on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle is over. (laughs) Said it like only Swindoll can. When God determines the end has come, he said, it's curtains. It's curtains. It's that fast. I mentioned a minute ago this... I mentioned it here in the office. We were talking about it earlier this week. Just this, I've kind of been enthralled, if you will, just kind of taken by the comparison between John 1 and Revelation chapter 19. I would encourage you to spend some time in those two passages. And, and by way of application, just to wrap this up, let me, let me give you a couple of things just to think about in regard to that passage. I'm not going to read John 1. In the beginning was the Word. He's there in the end, too. In the beginning, he created. He was the agent of creation. In the end, he's the agent of wrath and judgment. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light pierced the darkness in John chapter 1. The light pierces the darkness in Revelation 19 and kills it. Destroys it. In John 1, he makes us children of God. As I said in, John, in Revelation 19, he makes unbelievers and rebels carrion for the birds. In him we see the glory of God. In his grace and in his truth. In Revelation 19, we see the glory of God in his wrath and his judgment. 
First time he came as a lamb and as the great shepherd. Second time he comes as a roaring lion and a fearsome judge. So Revelation 19 begs the question. This is the first point of application. When the word comes again, which side will you be on? Which supper will you be at? There's no way to water this down and make it any more pleasant to the natural ear. Death and destruction, eternal death and destruction are for those who rebel against God and reject the gracious offer he makes in Christ Jesus. Please don't do that. Please. Come to Jesus. Secondly, for us within the church, the lions, the, the lamb who is standing as a lion... You know, we've, we've been pushing the book, Ray Ortland's book that's out there in the lobby, Gentle and Lowly. And he is. Come unto me, Jesus says, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. He is that, church. And we worship him for it. But he is fearsome. And he will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God in violence and unmitigated wrath. And I know even as those words come out of my mouth that it's with eyes of faith, a heart of faith, that we accept that and understand that in Jesus those two things meet perfectly. They're not contradictory. And... and, And we're to worship Him, and we're to fear Him, and we're to stand confident in that victory. So, do that. And and thirdly, there is a name that no one knows of our Christ, and, and we're to meditate on the mystery of Him. That shouldn't push us away, that should draw us in like a moth to the flame. To know Him better. To know more and more of Him now. And just to relish the reality that we're going to be able to know him more and more for all of eternity. And finally, do we recognize, Christians, who we are as, as a part of our king's army? Clothed in holiness? Clothed in righteousness? Bold in him? And one thing I'm thinking through and I'm still working this out in my mind is, and I, and I believe it's true. I don't believe we're fighting in Revelation chapter 19. We're just watching and worshiping. But that's then. Now is now. And we've been given the weapons we need for the spiritual battle that if we don't know we're in it, we've lost it already. We are waging war. We are in a spiritual battlefield. And the one offensive weapon that we see Jesus wielding in Revelation chapter 19 is the one offensive weapon we've been given in Ephesians chapter 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's the weapon we yield. Yeah, we're clothed in all the armor of Christ, but we're to wield the Word. We're to know the Word. We're to be in the Word. We're to be sharing it and leading each other through it and struggling through those hard passages and growing in it. We won't fight then. 
But we fight now, and that's part of the way, as we saw last week, that we are clothing ourselves and, and preparing ourselves. That we, we, we're, As it says there, we are making ourselves ready through fighting the good fight of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can rest in the assurance of this picture that we see in Revelation chapter 19. It is as good as done. Give us great confidence and boldness in that, Lord, as your people. And, Father, I do pray that if anyone in this room or anyone who may watch or hear this later has never trusted in you, Lord Jesus, that they will turn to you. That you will fear them, fill them with the fear of God, the fear of your judgment, and the truth of your gracious offer of life and forgiveness. Thank you for offering that to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came the first time in such a gracious, loving way to offer us salvation. Thank you that we are still in those days of grace. And thank you for reminding us that those days will come to a screeching halt. Be glorified, Lord, we pray, through your church. Be glorified through those that you draw into the kingdom and save. You are worthy of our worship, Lord. We offer it to you now in Christ's name. Amen.